What do startups ultimately fight for? You're fighting for attention, you're fighting for talent, you're fighting for your place in the market, right? And so it led me to this belief that, hey, you know, if there's a startup founder out there every single day that's kind of like fighting for their life and fighting for their business's life, they're probably one of the least, you know, harmful things that could come into their inbox, maybe arguably one of the more exciting things that could come into their inbox, is some kid out there that's hyped yeah. up about what they're trying to build and has some ideas on how they can push that mission forward. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. All right, Kevin, welcome to another episode of Mundane Millionaires. I'm your co-host, Eric Pasifici, and our goal on today's pod is to explore the journeys and strategies of a fantastic small business owner who's focused on what truly matters, family, community, quality of life, and juicy cash flows. Yeah, today, super excited to have Romine Shethon as our guest. For those that don't know Romine, he's co-CEO of Metasys. Metasys is a company that services Fortune 500 companies in the talent solution space. But one of the more interesting things of his journey and perhaps a personal bias here is his decision to go to law school and then to not practice law and instead pursue a path to entrepreneurship. So okay. excited to talk about that with Romine. And, and finally, Romine is a very successful content marketer online. He's got a huge Twitter following. I think north of 175,000 Twitter followers today. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, Kevin, to me, his Twitter following specifically, which is always kind of a pet interest of mine, is that he doesn't really post anything provocative, right? Like there's no, you know, for lack of a eloquent way to say, he doesn't never shit posts. Like he just posts high quality stuff because he is a brilliant dude. He went to, to Harvard Law School and then decided not to practice. And he dives into that and you know, kind of his thinking and how he ended up in business versus legal, which is obviously something that's that's interesting to us as lawyers, but I think other folks may find it interesting as well. And then, you know, interesting to the audience generally is he is a successful acquisition entrepreneur. He's bought a business and done extremely well. And, you know, and eventually he's now par partnered that business with private equity and he dives into his business philosophies and thinking about SMB and acquisition entrepreneurship. And frankly, I learned a lot. It was a great, really great episode. Absolutely. Learned a ton too. I think the listeners are going to have a great time learning from one of the greats. So I hope everyone enjoys today's episode. All right. Well, Romine, super happy to be talking to you on today's show. I think we just jump right in and let's talk about your journey. You have such a fascinating story. And we, we hit this in the intro that you are trained as a lawyer, but pivoted very quickly from practicing law to entrepreneurship. So talk to us about that. If I understand your bio correctly, you went to Harvard Law School, which is among the best of the best, probably could have had your pick of jobs, but decided to pivot. So what what was behind that? What led you to law school? And then what led you to that change to to pursue something else as you graduate? Thanks for having me on, guys. So you're right. So when went to Harvard Law. Before I went to Harvard Law and after I graduated Duke, Eric and I share some commonality there. I worked at a company called GLG. And GLG is, folks that are listening may know GLG, it's, it's turned into one of the world's largest, if not largest, expert network platforms. But the way that GLG got its start was two Yale Law guys who were at hedge funds, and they would create these 3,000 page you know, business reports and go all around Wall Street and try to sell them. And then what they realized relatively quickly was, you know, people said, hey, the report is great, but I'd love to talk to your source you know, on page 2057. And so what oh, they realized is there's a business here in actually connecting people that have the information with people that want the information, as opposed to doing all of the underlying research and the work, you know, underneath. So when I went to GLG, it was an interesting company composition because everybody on the leadership team, mostly everybody on the leadership team were actually former lawyers. And so it gave me this viewpoint into business success at the highest level 
but with a management team that was all former lawyers. And, and a lot of those lawyers, by the way, were not just people that went to law school, but people that worked, you know, at, um, at the law firms that we're all very familiar with in New York City. Right. So they didn't go they from didn't... law school direct to business. They had they had had a, a career. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They were the you know they were the law school one of the K. Cole Gordons, the Kirkland and Ellis's, the Cravats, et cetera, of the world. Right. Worked there, cut their teeth there. Typically transitioned from there into some you know finance job or so, hedge funds, investment banks, private equity, et cetera, and then kind of found themselves you know in this company. And so I went into law school to be honest with you know part of the perspective of I didn't know if I wanted to be in business or if I wanted to be in law. But I knew that if I didn't go to law school, the optionality to go be a lawyer was shut out, right? You could always do business without going to business school, and you could always find a different path, but you had to go to law school, right, if you ever wanted to be a lawyer. So I went to HLS and was pretty pretty firm on kind of this idea, right, of being a lawyer. I did M&A my first summer at a local law firm down here in Atlanta. I'm originally from Atlanta, and we moved back here from the Bay Area a number of years ago. And actually really enjoyed it, right? It was a small law firm focused on doing kind of small business, you know, technology work. We would do M&A transactions that were, you know, you're kind of like $100 million, $200 million deals, so not, you know, massive, massive kind of company deals. But the teams were really leanly staffed, right? It was one partner, one associate, and and be the summer associate. And so you really got the feel and the vibe of actually taking something kind of beginning to end, right? And, and everything in between. My second summer, I did the prototypical, you know, what people that go to law school often do or aspire to do, which is you go work for a big, New York corporate law firm. Yeah. And that was terrible. Which firm was that, Romy? Yeah, name names. You got to name names. Yeah, so I was at Cleary Gottlieb, but I was picking between Kevin, your alma mater at Cravath, Eric, your alma mater at Kirkland, Skadden, Simpson Thatcher, and Cleary. And I thought the Cleary folks were the nicest of the bunch. And they were. They, they actually did. They were good people. But the work couldn't, you know, I'm, I'm shocked you decided not to practice law after that experience, Romy. It's <laughs> Yeah. Those are all wonderful places to work for the audience's benefit. Amazing, amazing places filled with amazing people. And so so the challenge was that the biggest challenge actually that I had was, you know, put put kind of the, the drudgery of being a summer, you know, the sure, junior sure. lawyer. Because summer associateships, you know, you guys know this very well, but for anybody that's been there, it's you know, it's it's like Disneyland for the summer, right? It's not a real experience at all. Just to contextualize for listeners that are lawyers, when was this? Was this like pre-financial crisis, post-financial crisis? Financial crisis, but well before kind of any correction or so. So 20, 2014, I graduated from HLS in 2015. So this was 2014. And so things were good, right? Times were good at these law firms. The economy was you know, quite in the middle you know, of a 10-year sure, bull sure. run, and, and things were pretty good. There was, a, there was a pretty seminal experience that pushed me about not to be a lawyer, not to want to be a lawyer. And it was the one M&A deal that we were working on we got together, you know, with the management team of this big public company, and they had brought in, you know, we had a two-day offsite with them. And, you know, the the first part of the offsite was, you know, the CEO kind of really, you know, driving the management team as to why they were doing the deal. And then there were a set of advisors that were around at the table. So there were the consultants from Bain, there were the bankers from Goldman, and then we were there as a lawyer from Cleary. And the consultants talked about you know, everything under the sun of the strategy of why they were doing this transaction in the first place. What was going on in the industry? What were the competitive dynamics? You know, where was the industry? Sure, sure. The banker spent a ton of time on the valuation, right? Intrinsically, how do we actually value the company? And at the end of the two-day summit, we had one hour and we got to talk about who was going to be on the board and how are we going to pay for the deal. And that was the precise moment that I looked around the room and I said, of the four chairs that are here, the lawyer, the banker, the consultant, and the CEO, this is the fourth out of fourth chair that I want to be sitting in. And so that was my experience where I went back to campus and basically said, I you know, graciously got my offer and I went back to campus with the sole mission my 3L year of finding a job that was not in the law. And so I spent the entire year, you know, I think a lot of these tactics are kind of popular now and, and glad for it, right? Kind of folks have made it popular in things like Twitter, et cetera. I just cold emailed companies that I thought were interesting. CEOs and founders okay. of companies that I thought were interesting. They were pretty much all legal tech startups. I had this, you know, fallacy in my mind that because I went to law school, I should, if I wanted to do a startup or something in business, it should have some. You wanted to feel close enough to the law that it made some sense. Is that you still felt that? Yeah, wanted to, wanted to be close enough to the law where it made sense. But little did I realize, you know, not only did I not know anything about, you know, businesses, I didn't really know anything about the law either. 
So it didn't really matter if you were close to the law or not, right? Because when you go to law school, you don't learn anything about actually being a lawyer. Shh, don't let the secret out. Not even at Harvard. I mean, I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You learn nothing about being a lawyer, literally nothing about being a lawyer. And so, so yeah, so I just, I started cold emailing founders of of companies, but they were legal tech companies. And so I had some perspective, right, that I could put out. And, and the emails were not, hey, you guys are building something cool, like, you know, please chat with me, et cetera. The emails were, I really dug into your business and here are the 15 things that I would do, or here's the way I would think about your product. You know, let me know if this is interesting and I'd love to chat, right? And, and the response rate was really high because it turns out that still to this day in 2023, I don't think anything has changed. When you send somebody that's running a business insightful thoughts about their business, yeah. much higher willingness to respond to your email then, hey, you know, can we grab a virtual coffee? Just to interrupt the cadence of your story for a second, I definitely want to tie it out, but I am curious, and maybe I'm exposing a a little bit of my own inexperience having gone directly from undergrad to to law school and not having kind of experience in the corporate world at the time. I, I never would have known, right? To me, I'm a student. I'm reaching out to alumni or to CEOs or something like that. I'm, I'm almost kind of asking for a favor. What, how did you develop at this time in the middle of law school, you're turning your career on your head. How did you develop the strategy to know, like, I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to ask for interviews. I'm going to take this proactive strategy of analyzing the business and reaching out in a way that might increase my hit rate. Uh, Because, because to me, thinking back to where I was in my mid twenties in grad school, that feels uh, daunting or counterintuitive. I couldn't have even done Kevin. Yeah. It almost sounds And I don't mean this disrespectfully. It almost sounds a little bit arrogant, like 26 year old me, I'm going to reach out to this 50 year old CEO of a company and be like, Hey, here's 10 things I think you could do better. Not to say it's wrong. I think it's a perfect way. I'm, I'm just, I'm talking through my mental. I would have had a very hard time with it. You're totally right, Kevin. In fact, it's, it's worse, right? I was 24. I wasn't 26. Right. And so one way you can kind of think about that is like, Hey, who the hell is this guy or this kid, right? To be kind of reaching out, you know, telling us what to do, et cetera. I think there's two things. So one is, I think it's important from a context perspective. I was reaching out mostly to, to startup founders, right? And so okay. a lot of these startup founders are young as well, right? And so they kind of, I, I think there's a, there's an adage or at least a perspective of seeing themselves in you, right? They were also the bold, you know, person from law school or wherever they were from, et cetera, that started their business. So I think that's one part of it. I think the second part of it is, you know, I would say it was honestly, it was naive. It, it definitely, I, I think strengths and weaknesses are often two sides of the same coin. So I think you could think of that as, as arrogance as well, quite candidly. I, I basically just have this belief in life and I, I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from immigrant parents. It actually definitely comes from immigrant parents, which is just, you have to figure out your own way. Right. And I think yeah. too often people, especially in top law school environments, catch themselves in this like, group think, you know, hive in a mind kind of mindset and everybody becomes really scared, right? And fearful. Like what is the worst that's going to happen when you send that email? Someone's not going to respond. Someone's going to tell you, no, thanks. I'm too busy. Right. I don't have time for you. That was the default expectation I had anyways. Right. And so my perspective was, you know, look, if I can reach out to 10, 15, 20, you know, startups that I think are interesting. And if I can provide something that's genuinely insightful I have to imagine if I was in that person's shoes that, you know, and you have to remember, like, what, what do startups ultimately, like you guys are a startup, right? What do startups ultimately fight for? You're fighting for attention. You're fighting for talent. You're fighting for your place in the market, right? And so it led me to this belief that, hey, you know, if there's a startup founder out there every single day that's kind of like fighting for their life and fighting for their business's life, the probably one of the least, you know, harmful things that could come into their inbox maybe arguably one of the more exciting things that could come into their inbox is some kid out there that's hyped up about what they're trying to build and has some ideas on how they can push that mission forward. Right. And so it was definitely a, a, like, uh, like a naive, like view of the world for sure mixed with kind of this like immigrant mentality of, you know, what I was very strongly firm on was I did not want to go to a law firm. And so that determination was very clear through, you know, what am I going to do about it? And the, and the what I was going to do about it was I have a time bound, right? I only have a year and I got to figure out another, another pathway. And that's, that's kind of what led to that. Yeah. No, I think it's a fair point. Cause if I think about some of the cold outreach we get now that I'm in the other seat, cause like I said, post hoc, 
I can see how valuable that can be. I'm responding way differently to, hey, I'm a 2L in law school, really interested in small business M&A, would love to pick your brain for 30 minutes versus like, hey, I've been following you for a year. I'm finishing up law school. I've been super interested in your journey. Had a, you know, here three thoughts I, I had about your practice and what you're building on social media and would love the chance to discuss them with you. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot differently because we are, we're hungry for the young talent, talent that can build on social media, think about the practice a lot differently. And that, you know, un, unfortunately or fortunately that comes a, a, a lot with that younger perspective. So yeah, certainly in the seat I am today, I think about it differently, but man, kudos to you to be willing to do that when you're 24. So Romine, I want to ask you about Metasys and kind of your journey, you know, you are an acquisition entrepreneur, you acquired Metasys and, you know, coming through the startup venture capital world, I think you kind of have a unique perspective for our viewer on the lines between kind of the traditional SMB enduringly profitable and then, you know, venture capital, right? Those are two very different animals. And so I'm, I'm kind of interested in your perspective on what you think about SMB and all these guys that are t tweeting about buying businesses. You bought a business, but you're a prolific venture capital investor, which is a very different animal. What's your, what's your perspective on the, the business buying phenomenon that we're all kind of watching happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's an unbelievable opportunity, right? Like I think the silver tsunami is really real. I think you have the vast majority of wealth uh, concentrated in this in this country in businesses and, and in baby boomers as a generation. And a lot of these businesses, you know, they need to find a home, right? And a lot of these folks, you know, either don't have folks within their family that they want to pass them down to, you know, they, they either are not interested in, you know, continually running it or turning it over to management teams. And they're, they're kind of stuck, right? They're kind of operating in this place where these businesses are definitely too small for private equity. They're, they're too big often for, you know, just handing it to your neighbor on the street. And so there's this kind of real like glut and this real challenge in the middle. I think the interesting thing about having perspective and exposure to both venture capital and startups and technology companies on one side, and then services businesses or non-services businesses, but let's say basically SMB businesses that generate cash flow, et cetera, that operate in the real world, is there's actually a lot more in common with one another and there's a lot that both sides can learn from one another. I think it's a hyper tribal approach that, you know, what, what happens with Twitter or places where people kind of yeah. swing. I'm going to tell you, if you say diversification in your portfolio, I'm not going to accept that as an answer. <laughs> so we need a definitive winner between venture capital and SMB here. I love SMB. I got to say, I think it's much better for returns and I think it's a, it's a much better way to live life. So, so I'll, I'll give you the SMB plaque. I, I think the, I think the right way to think about it is, so not actually diversification. I, I think the right way to think about it is what can you learn from both sides and both tracks, right? Yeah. So startups operate by a certain set of rules. And, and it really makes sense when you think about the why, right? These are typically winner take all. They're trying to change the world. They're largely binary outcomes. I mean, these are true zero to one stories, which I'd say require kind of like sheer willpower to create something new, right? Small business is very much so the opposite of that. Like you can be in a space that literally, literally has hundreds of winners. Right. I mean, in our space, there's over 250 companies in the U.S. alone that do $100 million in revenue. So what you're focusing on is practicality. How can you improve the core operations? You know, how can you extend into other tangential areas? These are more kind of one to end type of stories. I think they also require sheer willpower, but to capture something from something that already exists. So I always like to frame it or think about it as like startups give you the art of the possible. Like they give you this idea of like dream really, 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 really big. And small business gives you the art of the practical, right? Which is amazing how much value you can actually create for yourself, your employees, and your community if you think tangibly, practically, and realistically. They're both really good to do tours of duty in, have networks in, have expertise in, because they actually push you to be better in both respects. So in, in the 20, kind of 21, 22 hype cycle, craziness, you know, startup investing, et cetera, I would often, you know, talk a lot to founders that I had invested in about the importance of being cash flow positive, you know, spending the funds that you had raised, the $50 million, $100 million rounds and spending them frugally and not falling into this trap of, well, whatever amount you raise, you have to spend it in the next 18 months because that's just the venture capital cycle, right? I think in small business land, I, I share the same perspective with a lot of other operators also, which is take inspiration from these companies that are trying to change the world and going really big because it actually turns out that you can build 
small businesses into meaningful size middle businesses or large businesses. Every large business started from a small business, right? By definition, right? FedEx never used to exist. Coca-Cola didn't exist. Delta Airlines didn't exist. They all started as a small business, right? Um, and so if you can really not fall into this hive mind or, again, this kind of group think trap of small business is small business, I really like this idea of, you know, maybe you enter into a small business, but why can't it look like a venture capital-backed business? Why can't it be a multi-hundred million dollar you know, business. And if you capitalize it appropriate, hell, you'll make a lot more money than if you're a VC back founder founding a 500 billion or billion dollar company. I've seen it. Right. And so why not be able to operate or think like that? Like why, why have to make this kind of false choice of, well, if I pick small business, you know, it's a lifestyle business. I'm limited, I'm yeah. limited to X growth. Right. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, why do you have to, why do you have to think like that? And I think if you actually have a little bit more exposure experience, whatever it might be, right, to startups, et cetera, you, you see every single day, you know, people starting something from scratch and, and going, you know, for the world, right, and going for the moon. I think the cool thing about SMBs is you don't actually have to be all that big. Again, if you capitalize appropriately and you think responsibly, right, you can generate amazing outcomes for yourself. I think the cool thing about SMBs, though, is you can actually give yourself the call option to really go big. And oftentimes, you know, I, I think this is probably a whole separate track of conversation, maybe even a separate podcast, but I think it comes down to a lot of people just are, are short-term thinkers, right? They yeah, think in yeah. two-year horizons, four-year horizons, right, et cetera. You know, it's pretty, it turns out to be pretty interesting if you run a small, a small business, you know, for 15 to 20 years, it can compound into something that's, that's pretty, pretty large, right? Um, and so anyways, I think both sides really give, you know, good value to one another. And, and I'd really encourage actually like having actually that exposure across multiple spaces, right? I think when you're in this space, actually, you know, it actually serves you well as opposed to, as opposed to not. I, I love that idea. And I've thought about it a lot lately because, you know, at, at least, at least part of what we do, Eric, uh, you know, in our law firm, Eric, correct me if you see it differently, but like, I don't know, I'll make up a percentage, 20, 25% of conversations we have feels like it's almost more like business coaching strategy than it is like pure play legal. And one of the things I run into all the time are like, well, what are my options to buy out my investors in, you know, two, three, four years, if I, you know, want to be able to own a hundred percent of my company. And, and I always, cause I come from a VC world back when I practiced at Cooley, I always kind of have that moment of, we could talk about that, but the question becomes, should you, right? Is that a, is that an appropriate use of capital at the time? You know, is growth strategy more important than owning a hundred percent. Cause if you can triple your, your bottom line, owning 80% of your business versus not triple your bottom line and own a hundred percent, like who's going to make that trade, right? No one's like, like nobody, no, no, no rational investor would make that trade. So there's a, there's a balance there, I think. And I, I, I think you're right that there's a lot that the ETA small business buying space can learn from, from the VC space and vice versa. It's, it's way better also. I, I have this framework that I always like share with folks and I internalize it in any opportunity or any project that's that I'm working on. Do you want a grape or do you want a watermelon, right? <laughs> yeah. And the idea is basically, you know, neither, it's not a right or wrong answer, but you should be intellectually honest and self-aware. If you want a grape, right, you're going to have 100% of the thing, but it's a grape. It's super small. And if you want a yeah. watermelon, you have a slice of a watermelon. You can't have the whole thing but it's going to be significantly larger. And it, it feeds back to this belief that I have, which is in business, you can solve for one of two things. You can solve for money or power. You can't solve for both. And if you want power and you want control and you want this and you want your organization to be your fiefdom, it's going to look more like a grape, right? Assuming you run it well and don't, you know, run it off a cliff because often fiefdoms get run off cliffs. It's going to be a grape, right? You're going to have all the power in the world, all the control in the world. You're going to feel like the guy or the woman, right? The guy or the gal, you're going to be at the top of the mountain, right, of this very small, tiny thing, right, that in the grand scheme of things is pretty relevant. Yeah. Or you can have a slice of a watermelon. And, and that was a big, that was a big decision we made when we went from being bootstrapped to taking on a private equity partner. And it was basically this idea of, you know, I had grown the business, it had served us very well. But, you know, it was, it was clear that to get to the next stage, we could really do some interesting things, you know, with a partner in mind. And, you know, when, when you have a partner, it, it's not a grape anymore. Right. You, yeah. you have to operate the business, run the business in a way that, that comports kind of with that partnership. Right. So I think money, I think, I think, yeah. I think businesses ultimately come down to what you're solving for. 
Are you solving for money or are you solving for power? That's the the theme of this podcast. I think the theme of the SMB ETA space is that desire for control that people have. You know, they they want the the power back, right? And you know, certainly with I I think when most people think of venture capital, they think of when they think of entrepreneurship, they think of venture capital. You know, and they're 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 surprised when we start talking about ETA and buying a business and the economics of it and and the self-funded nature of it and 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 even the economics of taking investors and giving up some of that control, a little bit of the control and the amount of business you're still able to to keep. It's really kind of interesting to watch smart people that have lived their life through a, you know, a traditional entrepreneurship lens kind of learn about about SMB and ETA and get really excited about the proposition. But yeah, it's that, an that, unbelievable, I mean, it's an, it's an unbelievable opportunity. There's no question about it, right? I think one of the things I, I chuckle at sometimes, kind of when I, when I read on Twitter is, it does on, on Twitter and online, it, 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 there is this phenomenon to make it feel significantly easier than it actually is. Now, I, I think that's good, I, I, and bad, right? I actually don't think that's all bad. I think the reason that's good is because for the same reason, I actually think it's really good that we went through this kind of bubble phenomenon. You had so much venture capital deployed into startups. I think it's going to be terrible for those LPs. I think it's fantastic for the startup community at large. More people took bets. More people got into the game, right? And it's going to it's going to be a net net positive. I think on balance of just more people being exposed to a pathway. So I think it's fantastic when people talk online and do podcasts like this and talk about you know this as an alternative pathway because it is very real to the point you guys both made. It's a, it's a very real pathway. It's a very attainable and achievable pathway. And it's a very practical pathway to creating, you know, pretty material wealth, right? Yeah. I, think the, I think the most important thing, you know, whenever you see kind of this pathway online, right? Any, any pathway online, but especially this one, though, is, man, there are nine out of 10 horror stories for every great success story that's talked about online. And so I think it's really, really critical, right, that if you're going to consider going down this pathway, thinking through this pathway, you know, you're super self-aware and maybe we can double click into that. That's interesting or helpful. But I think there's a lot of things that you should be thoughtful of and, and considering about, you know, before jumping into this type of pathway as well. The freedom point, the freedom point, I'll just make one comment on. It's it's always interesting to me when, when I talk to an operator or someone or, you know, just generally, I'll say operator broadly, but anybody that wants to get into the space that thinks about or talks about freedom, because I think it's right and it's, I think it's very right and it's very wrong. I love the idea of freedom and what this pathway represents. There's no question it represents, you know, significant freedom, freedom from, you know, let's say a W2 job, freedom from, you know, a corporate boss, a corporation for which, you know, from which you don't have control, freedom of your own, over your own destiny, right? I mean, there's things out in small business all the time that aren't really in your control, but you're the CEO, you're, you're probably in as much control as you can be. And then the opposite side of that coin is there's no freedom at all when you're running a small business. There's no freedom. In fact, your, your boss is the toughest boss out of all the bosses, which is the market. And the market does not give a shit about your feelings. Can I, I thought you were going to say your wife, but- no, I was no. going to say, can I just interrupt for a second? Tara, if you're listening, please turn off the podcast at yeah. this moment. <laughs> well, you know, and I always characterize, I always say more control, right? More control than when you've got a boss that says, hey, be here, wear this, this time, punch this clock. We're traveling to wherever on Thursday through Sunday, and you don't have to go, but you have to, you know. But I'm I'm interested because you're an acquisition entrepreneur, and one of the theories that I have about this whole notion of it's made to be too easy on the internet or wherever, because I get that feedback from time to time. They're like, "Hey, you're you know you're you're overhyping it," and I always say, "No, I'm not. Like, it's just that the algorithm's burying the negativity, right? It does, nobody wants to hear those stories. That doesn't get traction, but." But my theory is it's a long winding path with lots of off ramps for the wrong people, right? You don't just mistakenly buy a business, right? It's a multi-month, multi-gatekeeper type of transaction. And so I really believe that the person who's not built for it almost never gets to the finish line. And I'm just curious your your perspective since you've you've been there. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a reasonable perspective. I also think, by the way, you guys do a really good service. Like, I, I love reading everything you guys put out. You know, it's in part obviously why, why I'm here and, and we're having this discussion too. I think you guys do a really good, great, really great service of actually opening people's eyes to this pathway. Because I think the biggest thing for most people is actually even just awareness that this pathway exists. Right. 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 
I think the, do you do it well? Do you not do it well? Is it actually harder than it might seem, et cetera? That's all a double click of like, once you're in the funnel or you're like down the path, right? The first question is, do you even know that there's a pathway or not, right? I, I think when you go down, you know, this, this pathway, right? I think what's most important is you're going in kind of very eyes wide open and very self-aware of yourself. So I, I don't, I think generally things are harder than anybody on the internet talks about. I think that's at least my life experience. Like maybe I'm not smart enough or I need to improve, but my experience generally has been that like things are a lot harder than they seem even in business, right? Everything costs twice as much. Everything takes twice as long as you might want it to, to actually pan out on. But I, I do think what you can do for yourself and, and what you can serve yourself very well with is just this understanding of what kind of person you are, right? So. So for whom do I think, let's say, let's take an A-B test and let's take two equivalently smart, pedigreed, accomplished, you know, whatever people. Who do I think ETA is good for? Who do I think ETA is not good for? I think if you thrive in structure and you need lots of resources, et cetera, there's nothing wrong with it. I just think ETA or small business is going to be help for you, right? I think you are better served being in a larger environment, climbing the ranks and running things that require you know, really good managerial oversight and scale and maybe a little bit of back, you know, back slapping and politicking, et cetera. And that's, that's okay. Right. That's, that's the path though, that you should go on. I think if you, you know, at your core, like this is what my experience in law school was like, that was suffocating for me. Right. And yeah. so I think if you're, if you're of that ilk and, and that kind of, you know, that kind of drives you or you thrive in smaller environments, maybe with your hands in every part of the pot. Right. And that's how you get, fulfillment, intellectual satisfaction, or neither of those, and you're just downright better at it or good at it, then I think something like ETA is, is great, right? So I, I, think the, I think the most important thing, one of the things that I've learned is just the cool part of this world, this big world that we live in is you can do really well, you can be really happy, you can make a lot of money, whatever your success metric is, as long as you're just good, right? And so like, yeah, if you're, yeah. you're good in SMB, great, you're going to do well. If you're good in a large corporation, great, you're going to do well. If you're good at a law firm, right? I think the three of us would joke, haha, you're miserable. But there was a Wall Street Journal article the other week that was saying that, hey, you know, the lawyers are actually changing the tides on bankers. And now the big law firms are making, you know, $10 million a year, right? And so I, I think ultimately yeah, yeah. it's a big function of just, you know, what do you, how do you want to live your life? And, and I think if you're going to explore this pathway, you got to start getting really good at being, comfortable with the uncomfortable because it is often a very forget the search part the acquisition part itself the operating part is very uncomfortable and you learn yeah, into yeah. it and you get into it but you got to be you got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable i, I love that concept because to me i think the the bigger criticism of kind of the rose colored you know rosy colored glasses isn't necessarily that nobody's talking about the downside but it's it's really this kind of culture online of like everyone should do this, right? Like you're kind of an idiot if you're driving downtown to your corporate job every day, which A, isn't true and B, something I've come to appreciate even more just given my own kind of path to entrepreneurship is even to a person that could be different based on timing. Because if, if I tried to launch a law firm even if I had the same experience, right? Putting aside that I only had three years of experience a decade ago, just where I was in my personal life, in my development and, and you know, things like that, that would have been an abysmal failure, right? And, and so there's also this concept of you, you may need something different, some different structure, things like that. Like today may not be your season to be an acquisition entrepreneur, but that doesn't necessarily mean three or four years from now eight years from now, it, it's not. And I think we see a lot of that too, that people develop into this space and develop skills and, and maybe the, maybe the timing's not right. And that people should be to your point, Romine, very kind of introspective and honest with themselves about the pressures, the things it takes. Cause my, my wife laughs all the time when I mention work-life balance in this, in this entrepreneur concept, she's like, that, what, what a joke, you know, but the more season I've got about this and kind of been in the space, the more I've learned that. So let's, for example, let's, let's take diligence, for example, right? Let's say, you know, we're either we're, we're buying a company or let's say I'm investing in a company, small business, you know, or startup or whatever it might be. 
the more I've actually learned to lean on figuring out the person and the why, as opposed to the actual business itself. I think most novices, when you diligence businesses, et cetera, get super caught up in, well, what's the financial model? What are the gross margins? You know, what, what's the competitive landscape, et cetera? Look, table stakes, right? You got to know what you're yeah. buying, right? You got to know what industry you're operating in, how the business works, et cetera. Table stakes. What's more important and what you learn, right, as you spend more time in spaces like this is the why and the who is 90% of the question mark, right? And so, you know, Kevin, your point is exactly right, which is, you know, a lot of times what people assume is they assume careers are linear pathways. They assume lives are, li lives are linear pathways, right? And everybody has a different season. Everybody has a different risk tolerance. Everybody has different, you know, support structures. Everybody has different levels of financial security. Everybody has different level of risk tolerance. If there's one thing I've learned about running a business, it's, it's my own personal risk tolerance, right? Am, in big decisions, right? Am I risk averse? Am I risk seeking, right? You know, and, and when you go through, when you operate a business, I don't, you know, I, I would, I can't speak for everybody's experience, but I would have to imagine people that have succeeded at some level, even if it's at a tiny level or, or a magnanimous level. I mean, you have gone through a customer dropping you, a partner manipulating a situation, having to fire an employee, maybe an employee stealing with you, a deal breaking down at the last minute. I mean, you have gone through, you know, COVID, every single one of these things and how you bounce back from that moment, how you treat that moment, et cetera. It's impossible to know by, you know, reading a business book, yeah, right? Yeah. Like yes. you just, it's impossible to know. Like you have to be in the game, in the arena, et cetera, to really feel it. And and I think what's most important is being really honest with yourself about, you know, it's okay to be in the arena or be in a situation and kind of feel that and say, you know what, this is not for me. It's too much stress. I don't want to do it. I don't want to work on it, et cetera. And maybe, you know what, I am great at being employee number 10 or employee number 50 or employee number 5,000, right? I mean, this trope of you have to be the founder or you have to be the CEO, you know, Sheryl Sandberg was never the founder right? She wasn't the CEO. She's made more money than probably, you know, a handful of CEOs in the world. That's a right? great, that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great analogy. You got to imagine Cheryl's operating as a CEO in a CEO capacity though, for Mark. I mean, that, you know, she's, she's probably driving would be my guess. A lot of that, but your point's well taken. But I think for, for me guys and, and Romy, we did at the beginning of starting our firm, we took the culture index. I don't know if I've talked about this yet on the pod, but we took the culture index, me, Kevin and Sam. Have you ever um, done one of those, Romine, or something like that? I haven't done the culture index. When I was at McKinsey, I spent a couple of years at McKinsey and we were like, we were very big on like MBTI, okay. right? No type of things, right? But no, tell me a little bit more about the culture index. Well, so I liked it, right? And I, I'm usually pretty skeptical of those things. I think they're pretty overgeneralized, but we did it. And by the end of it, like me, Kevin and Sam were, were like needing to smoke a cigarette just to like, you know, get past the moment because it was very interesting to hear about yourself. But one of the things that he had said to me and that I've learned about myself from starting the firm and being an entrepreneur versus having been a W2 is realizing how much I should have been an entrepreneur all along. And I know timing's important. And to Kevin's point, like I couldn't have done this five years ago, but, but realizing through this process and through, through that experience that like, okay, I am a peer play entrepreneur. Right. And that is part of the reason that I have, was, was feeling very unfulfilled and very uncomfortable in a W2 role. Right. And why it led to some, some job changes that probably wouldn't have otherwise happened in an entrepreneur, some change that wouldn't otherwise happen, trying searching for something within W2 that's never going to be there. And I think people do fall into those two camps. Although I will say a guy like Kevin, like, and I'll, you know, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I think you're, you're the kind of guy that you could succeed as a W2, but you're so competent that it is almost a waste, right? You should be creating and building because you are exceptional at systems and processes and well, I think that's one of the interesting things that came out of the, that culture index discussion, right? And and things I learned about myself, like I said, over a, a journey of 10 years or whatever, I wouldn't have been in that space 10 years ago because I, I learned things that are that, that can make entrepreneurship, things about myself that can make entrepreneurship very difficult, that over 10, 15 year career as a lawyer, I've been able to accommodate and adapt to and find myself where I am today, where I can use that 
as, as a strength, I can use the knowledge of those things about my personality to realize like, okay, I can't fall into this trap. One of which is being overly analytical to the point of being hamstrung on decision-making. I can go, I can go months researching every possible permutation on a decision before, before making it right. Which you, which you can't do in entrepreneurship. I mean, your business is dead three months down the road on a, on a critical decision. So that's what I mean. Like even someone myself that may have some of those tendencies and personality traits that initially may not translate well to entrepreneurship, the more you learn, the more you have a desire and the more you realize like, yeah, I can put my skill set to use in a really interesting way in an entrepreneurship context, but with the benefit of now having gained some experience and learning things, like it's, it's a new season of life. It's a new season of career to your point, Romine, that this, it's, it's just not linear. And I think if you told me 10 years ago, I'd be running my own law firm, investing in small businesses and speaking at conferences on buying small businesses, I'd have told you you're out of your mind. I was going to be a partner on Wall Street at some firm being dropped off in a black Audi and going up to my 49th floor office, right? Just collecting my paycheck. Like, that's just what I expected. And, and you know, it's a lot different. But let me, but, let me ask you guys, honestly, do you guys fear failure and do you lose sleep at night over entrepreneurship? Does this scare the hell out of you from time to time? Yeah. I mean, it did definitely start. There's no question about it. Does uh, it still, how, how long did that period take to kind of wear off? If it, I mean, if I'm being honest, I st- like I still, I think it just, I think the scale, like the scale changes and it continues to, it continues to permeate. I, I think if you care about the business you're running, you care about the people that are working for you, you care about the customers you're servicing, the community you're in, et cetera. I don't know if that ever goes away. Now, I think there's, two sides of that question, right? Or like we can double click into it a little bit differently. So, you know, financially, this is where I think it's really prudent to be thoughtful about risk and risk management, right? And so whether it's taking distributions from the business, maybe you take an outside investor, you know, and you take some chips off the table, you sell a portion of the business, et cetera. I think all along the way, you should be gating your risk, right? And and that can take at least, let's say existential failure or economic failure out of the equation. But I'll tell you, like we did our transaction with our private equity firm. And, you know, in one respect, you could say, hey, that's amazing. You know, kind of walk away. You're done. You don't have to work ever again. And that feeling lasted for a day and a half. And then I thought, holy shit, how are we going to take the business to the next level? And the fear set right back. Right. So what I've learned is actually I, I don't think any singular emotion just goes away. I think you get better at compartmentalizing them. And I think you get better at understanding the interrelationship right between the different ones. I think fear is actually a really good, healthy emotion, right? There's a reason why there's that framing, you know, by the Sequoias or the benchmarks that's out of the world or just good investment firms, which is only the paranoid survive. So I think you should have a healthy amount of fear. If you don't have any fear, I think you're apathetic. And if you're apathetic, you should sell your business, you should hire a CEO, right? You should figure out some way to off ramp, right? Because if you stay in the zone of apathy, you're going to let everybody down. You're going to let yourself down, your investors down, your company down, et cetera. I think, I think fear is, I think fear is actually quite healthy. Right. And I, I definitely continue to feel it. And, and I think the important thing is, is translating that and communicating that. Right. So this is not the question you asked Eric, but I think it's pretty related and it's an important point to make. So I'll make it, which is, you know, in our management teams, for example, right. You know, I will share right with members of the management team, you know, how I'm feeling. Like, am I feeling nervous? Am I feeling fearful, et cetera? You know, I think there's a stage in place for it. So what I'm not advocating for by any stretch for anybody listening is go buy a business and the next day tell everybody how scared you are of business. So let's just be clear on that. That's how Eric kicks off all of our firm meetings. No, I I overcompensate by being hyper aggressive and screaming and a lot of cussing. So <laughs> that's exactly what I would expect from you. Yeah. So when you, I think what's really, I think what's really important though, is, you know, once let's say, you know, we've been, we've been lucky to get to a, a level of scale where, where the business is meaningfully sized now. I, I share that sentiment and feeling with members of our management team. And the reason why I do that is because it encourages to sh- for them to share their feelings back and for us to say, you know what, let's get whatever is unspoken right between you, between me, let's just get it out on the table so that we can work through it and we can handle it and we can harness it. If we're both feeling fearful, right? Why is that the case? If one of us is feeling super optimistic and the other is feeling nervous, well, why is that the case? Right? Et cetera. I, I'm, I'm, you know, of the belief 
that it's really good habit and good you know practice to actually do that in close quarters, right? I think if you're getting on a company all hands call, we have a little bit over 100 employees now. You know, nobody's walking over there saying, "Hey guys, today I woke up and I am scared." Right? Obviously. Right. right. Well, terrified for your futures. We just we tell them we tell them on podcasts in an asynchronous way. Exactly. So, but I think it's I think it's really important. I think it's important to manage that that emotion of, of fear and continue to manage it. I think I think it feeds. I think the opposite side of that, going back to something I said earlier, which is strength and weaknesses are often two sides of the same coin. You know, I think I think the opposite side of that coin of fear, right, is motivation, is a lens of reality, and is a bias to action, right, to do something about it to mitigate that fear. Fear really comes ultimately from a place I think of just unknown, right, unknown or lack of preparation. And so you either prepare more or you solve whatever those unknowns are that you're fearful of. And then, you know, when you're in business, you, you learn that as you solve some unfears and not, or you solve some fears and unknowns, you turn over a rock and there's more fears and unknowns, but you at least, you know, you at least mitigate those accordingly. Yeah. I, I love that idea of almost like using it strategically, right. To foster an environment where you can encourage more open communication you know, the more open you are with your management team, again, in the right context and in the right ways, making it comfortable for them to then express back things that they're afraid of or concerned about or things like that. Because I think I think you really set yourself up for difficulty or, or potentially even failure by fostering an environment where people are expected to be right and have the right answer 100% of the time. And I, I, I think that's an interesting strategy to make people more comfortable of like, ra raise your voice, like, let me know what's keeping you up at night. Let me know what's not, not working, especially in a, in a way I've had this conversation with my wife recently as she's been trying to decide with kids and at school age and, and getting ready to what to do this concept of like, I don't, I don't know what I want the next five years to look like, but I know I don't want it to look like this. And like, and that's okay to not have that answer right now, but it's also really important to be having that conversation and know, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is, but I know it's not this and something's wrong and, and we need to improve something that can, can generate some really interesting outcomes in, in a management environment. Um, yeah, totally. I, love I, that. I know tell people on our team that like, I don't honestly care if you have the right answer or not. I mean, I care at some point in time, but immediately I don't care if you have the right answer or not, but what I do care is that you have some thought process of how we're yeah. going to push forward, how you're either going to go find the answers, right, to, to get to, you know, or find the, you know, facts, et cetera, to go find out the right answer. You have, you have some framework, you know, of how we're going to move forward. That, you know, you have to, you have to be able to keep pushing and keep moving ahead. I, I think, again, like these, these conversations become really interesting because I think if you read the subtext of what we're talking about right now, right, and you kind of like feel almost our, the three of our personalities coming out of this conversation, like that is ultimately, you know, if you're, you know, if this, if, if you're listening to this conversation and thinking, Hey, that's me, you're probably, you know, an entrepreneur through acquisition or small yeah, business, yeah. you know, want to lead it. If you're hearing this and you're like, man, I'm scared or I really don't want to do that. Right. Then you're probably not. And again, neither is, I think the trope often is just one is good. One is bad. One is right. One is wrong. One is the path you know, to success and one is the yeah, path, yeah. you know, to unfulfillment. Right. And I think ultimately everybody has to make that, that decision for themselves. But if you do lean in on something like this and you're hearing this and you're like, this does excite me and there's going to be a whole bunch of discomfort and fear and paranoia and lots of sleepless nights. And, you know, the idea of balance is, is so laughable in the early days. Like, I don't know why anybody tries to promote that this is the path to work like balance you know, then you're going to be fine. Just go in with your eyes wide open. Right. And, right. It, and if it works out, it can be, it can be awesome. Like there's no question about it. It's changed my life. Right. There's no question about it. I love that. Much better than going to Cleary, I would imagine. But right. for those of you at Cleary, no, no please, please reach Cleary. out. We'd love to chat. Yeah. We'd love to have you on the team. Can, um, but it's, it, it's been the opposite for me. I think when we started out, Kevin, I had almost no fear right at the beginning where I felt very much like, if this works, if it doesn't work, it's, everything's going to be fine, you know, it'll, and it'll be interesting to see if it does or doesn't, but I feel like it probably will, right? Well, that's the thing. I, I think that's the big thing, Eric, right? I think so fear, what we didn't talk about is like this gradient of fear or the reality of fear, right? So I think, I think, look, if you're, I'm always very careful in this space because what people take action on is not 
like like joining a startup, for example, and a startup not working out, I think you should have zero fear. You're going to learn a ton. You're going to meet a bunch of smart people, right? And you're going to be more attractive in your next job than anything else, right? So this idea of like, you go into a startup and it fails, et cetera, right? Again, I, I understand like there are layoffs and there are bad circumstances and it doesn't always work out for everybody. Caveating all that, putting all that aside, I think generally, right, going to a startup, et cetera, you're going to learn a lot. You know, you're going to be in an interesting environment and you're going to kind of find your, your next gig. I'm always more careful in this space when people are putting, you know, millions of dollars on the line or personal guarantees, et cetera, because yeah, that yeah. can existential, right? And so you should be, again, just a prudent manager of your own risk and nobody knows your situation better than you. But let's put that part aside or that caveat aside, which is, again, if you take that caveat out of the mix, I think risk and kind of fear of failure is actually very overblown, right? Because what is the worst that is going to happen right, if you right. put that yeah, one yeah. kind of nugget aside? Maybe your business fails or so, but man, you're going to have learned so much about your own psychology. You're going to have to learn a ton of skills. And I guarantee you there is some middle market company out there that wants to go hire some super sharp, super motivated person that actually yeah, really knows a ton about business because they had to live it, right? You can't simulate having to let someone go. You can't simulate a big customer dropping you. You can't simulate COVID happening, sitting in front of a dashboard of your business Seriously. and seeing you just go down. Right. You can't simulate those things. You just you have to live through those things. I think we can all read stories about those things and say, wow, that's amazing. Or maybe I would have reacted this way or, you know, the heroes triumph on the other side. But man, in the moment, it does not feel like that at all. And if anything, I actually think that's super attractive because that gives you a ton of perspective. When you get through moments like that, you actually realize, you know what? It's not as bad you know, as it feels in the moment. There have been moments in our business that have felt existential or terrible personally, right? Yeah. There have been moments that have also felt unbelievable, right? And it turns out like, you know, the lows are not as low as you may see, they may feel. The highest, the cool part is sometimes the highs actually are as high as they may, you know, pan out to be or feel to be. But, you know, you, you get a lot of perspective, I think, for you know, for, for, for being in these situations. And, and the result of that, I think, is you get a lot of empathy, right, for these these types of pathways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think I actually probably have more fear now that we've built something meaningful. We've got people counting on us, right? When it was just me and Kevin, like, I care a lot about Kevin and his family and we're, you know, think about them. But, you know, when it was just us, like, the, you know, the fear of failure was much lower. And now that we've got a meaningful organization, we've got a bunch of people on our team, that are counting on it to, to sustain. I think of the Nick Saban quote where he says, you know, being successful is great, but staying successful is even more difficult. And I think that's where we're kind of at, where we're like, okay, we've got a work, we've proved a concept. It's growing. It's going well. People are counting on us. You know, we've got business coaches that are saying higher, higher, higher. And I think we're reluctant to do that because we still, we worry about the, the ramifications of a reversal. I do at least. I mean, I think but, the cool uh, thing about being in your guys' situation, right? And this is something we we absolutely went through and, you know, in our business as well. And this is something that's very different about, you know, I don't want to say real businesses if tech businesses are not real businesses, but I feel like because I've invested in a ton of them, I can say that. <laughs> you You have this pathway or optionality of like, you don't actually, you know, when you talk to a coach, so I, I love that you brought that up because that's such a coach response, right? A coach response is basically... Grow, 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 right? You got this thing, you got to latch onto it, you got to hire, et cetera. What, what I think is most important is actually, what are you guys solving for? You know, it may turn okay. out that the best absolute situation for you is you have 10 attorneys on the team and you have a small, knit, you know, close team and you guys are making a bunch of money and you're enjoying what you're doing and that's it. Because I'll tell you, once you have 100 attorneys, your jobs are, you're not working on deals anymore, as you guys know. You're managing the firm. You're hiring people, you're firing people, you're, you're making that would be a decision. <laughs> that would be, that'd be right? terrible, Romy. We don't want that. Right. Well, hey, I, I I don't mean to fast track us, but I mean we we could be here for three hours, I think, picking your brain, Romy. And I I I think there are a couple of questions we wanted to get to, maybe a little more rapid fire fashion, yeah, if sure. that's okay. And Absolutely. and we can uh wrap up without going too much longer. I, I would I would like to hear in this this kind of harkens back to something we were talking about earlier uh, and then we'll wrap up with a couple kind of easier lighter questions I, I would like to hear just briefly your approach because we've talked a lot about this idea of like freedom and work-life balance and things like that and that 
you know, maybe there's a flavor of it in entrepreneurship, but it's, it's not quite as rosy as some people paint it to be. How do you just talk us through in, in your seat as co-CEO, like how, how do you find that balance to, you know, be able to leave the job in the office, so to speak, and balance some of the priorities and work with some of the priorities in your personal life and not let it just become super overwhelming? I'm not the best at this, I'll be honest. So with that caveat, I will say, uh, I, I think most people, when they talk about balance, they talk about it on the scale of having balance or not having balance. I think what most people admit from that conversation is they, they don't talk about the time scale of balance. So I'm, I'm a firm believer, right? I'm sure some people will roast me for this or tell me this is insensitive and not thoughtful. I'm a firm believer that if you wanna make something of your life, of your career, et cetera, balance should not really be in your vocabulary in your 20s. I just don't believe in it. And I think the reason for that is by not having balance early in your career, you really, really jumpstart your personal progression. You know, it turns out that the hardest part about business is not really actually the intellectual part. It's not the strategy part. It's not the Excel model. It's not the, you know, you know it's, it's none of that stuff, right? The hard part about business is just the emotional stuff that we were talking about. Sure, and the sure. only way that you get experience on that is you get reps, right? And the faster that you can get reps, you know, the more you have just a better semblance of how the world works and how business works. And then I think once you have that skill set, you have some skills, you have some perspective, right, et cetera, you have judgment, right, which is really hard to accrue, right, and accumulate. Once you have judgment, then I think you can be hyperbalanced, right? Then sure, I think sure. you can actually create tons and tons of leverage for yourself, which comes in the form of hiring, recruiting, structuring, et cetera. Yeah. And so I, I've I've always thought about balance. I always tell people, this is the way I think about balance. And again, it's for you to decide or, you know, if, if this is the right definition or fit for you, everybody's life circumstances are different. Everybody's aspirations are different. I, I think you, you know, I think you work really, really hard and don't have balance in the beginning. And I actually think that gets you a ton of balance, you know, in life. My, my thought was always, you know, I'm 33. My thought was always like, when I'm, when I'm 35, when I'm 40, et cetera, you know, we have little kids, you know, we really want to kind of focus on, you know, our life, et cetera, outside of work. You know, I would love to be in a position where all those early years and all that hard work created true leverage, right? You guys know this as lawyers. Lawyers have no, like traditional lawyers, you guys aren't traditional lawyers, but traditional lawyers have no leverage. They sell their time, right? Yep. They have no leverage at all. And it turns out that, well, you know, when you own a business or you're in the business world or you're an investor or whatever it is, you, you have all the leverage in the world, right? Because you're not, you're not trading you know, your time for compensation. There's only so many hours in a day, right? So I, I think when you think about balance, at least the way I think about it is most people want to have work-life balance. I'm very empathetic and sympathetic to that. I actually want to have work-life balance too. I just think people frame it as you either have work-life balance or you don't have work-life balance. I think the right way to think about it is early in your career, you should not be balanced and your, your sole goal should be to create a significant amount of leverage so that in the vast majority of your life, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, et cetera, uh, yeah. you have a ton of balance. It's very, very possible. I think there's a very common trope that you can't be successful and you can't have balance. And I think that's a cop-out. I think a lot of people say that because it's helpful to look in the mirror and, and feel like, you know, well, wait a minute, you know, I wanted, ba I felt good because I chose balance over success. I don't know, I, I don't really accept that. I think you can get balance by being hyper successful I just think you have to learn how to play the game a little bit differently. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It's almost like reframing that balance isn't a destination. It's really just a, a continuum of what the what the appropriate level of balance is, and have you found that right equilibrium for where you are in your 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 career trajectory or pathway? I love that. In, in my first job, one of my buddies, we had a roundtable with the CEO, and that was one of the questions he asked me. He was like, "Mr. Emerson, tell us how you balance work and life." He was like, I hate the idea that we're balancing between these two things. It creates an inherent conflict between life and work as though work is not a part of your life, Chris. And I remember going, what a stupid question to ask your CEO as an entry-level individual. Chris, if you're listening, yeah. man, I hope you no, grew up. Bad question. Yeah, Chris, no, if you're listening, you have very strong thoughts on you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's yeah. right. I think, I, think like, I think the way you have to think about it is basically, you know, ultimately, again, Ultimately, and it, it sounds a little bit like a cop-out, but I so firmly believe this, 
life is all about figuring out what are you solving for. There's no right. I think often when you look for answers from other people, right, it's because you don't have the answer for yourself yet. And the minute you stop comparing yourself to other people, looking at what other people are doing, you know, thinking about, you know, other people and just thinking about, you know, yourself, your journey, et cetera, and having confidence and conviction in that is when you've kind of figured out what the right answer is for you, right? There's no right answer generally. It's what is the right answer for you? Yeah. And I think generally my experience at least has lended to this idea that the right answer for me personally was figure out a system in a way in which you don't have to, you know, cut down on your level of ambition or interest or fulfillment or whatever it might be, right? Like my personal aspiration might not be to run the largest company in the world, you know, et cetera. But my personal ambition is to be around smart people, have conversations like this, be fulfilled, et cetera. And so what a shame it would be if I had this kind of like fallacy of thinking in my mind that, you know, to have balance in my personal life and with my wife and, you know, soon eventually our kids and our parents, et cetera, which is all the reason why we moved back to Atlanta. So so yeah. clearly important to us to be so close to family and to have that balance per se, right? That we moved back to where, you know, we grew up, right? What a shame it would be to take these two very, very important parts of your life and basically say they're at tension with one another and you can only have one or the other. Rather, why not sit down, take a step back and say, you know what, you're smart, you'll figure it out. Like be creative, be thoughtful. If the question mark or the solution set was not, how can you get ahead and make the most money possible? But rather the solution set was, how can you be filled fulfilled, live a great life, maintain great relationships, you know, and maybe make, you know, an interesting amount of money along the way. What might be your answer to that question? My hypothesis would be, it'd be a very different answer, you know, than the answer to the former, which is what would it take just to make the most amount of money possible? Right. Yeah. I love that. Final question, Romine. We, we mentioned in the intro, in addition to being co-CEO of a great company, a venture capital investor, et cetera, you're also a great content creator. You've got uh, an incredible following on Twitter. Eric is envious every day. He texts me about it. What What do you think about the rebrand? I probably shouldn't even use the word. The, I want to know the how you got to 175K without it. How are you feeling it? about the, the direction of Twitter slash X.com, the, the rebrand, et cetera? Well, I think Eric will pass me in following soon enough, so he shouldn't be envious about me. And <laughs> to, I am royally confused, I'll be honest. I, I think I think it's yeah, a classic. Yeah. It, it it underscores the power of Gelman Amnesia for me more and more every day I watch what's unfolding. I think you can take somebody that's a world-class operator in the real world and candidly, and even with software as well, and put them behind software and be just perplexed continuously as to yeah, what's going on. I, I, while I say that the other side of that, which is going to sound a little bit contradictory is, you know, I feel like if there's anybody that could figure it out, there's a handful of entrepreneurs in the world that could figure it out. And there's no way you can't put Elon Musk on that list, but I don't know. I'm very, it's very confusing to me. I, I, what I hope for is, you know, what Twitter or X, et cetera, was great for certainly during the pandemic over the last couple of years, you know, was, you know, just really being a town square, the internet developing relationships yeah, yeah. like this, right? We, building, we, yeah. we, we don't bet online, right? We haven't met in person ever. And it was yeah. what, an, what an unbelievable forum to develop interesting and meaningful relationships like this. So my, my hope is if you put all the kind of like, you know, noise and nonsense and histrionics aside, I hope that it doesn't lose this flavor, you know, of really being a valuable forum, you know, to connect like-minded people that, you know, maybe in some random town in the U.S. and not are not finding like minded people, you know, in their corner, yep, yep. you know, get to see, you know, guys like you, Kevin and Eric on Twitter and say, you know what, I am going to go buy that business or I am going to make that jump, you know, from being a W2 employee or whatever it might be, because how powerful is that? Right. I mean, I think like when you, if you get really philosophical about it or think, you know, at a very, very macro level, there's something very real to the idea of you know, what zip code are you born in drives a lot of, you know, what happens in your world. And I think it's so cool to have a platform, you know, that basically says, how can we basically turn down some of those types of barriers? So I'm confused. I'll be honest. A lot of it doesn't make sense to me, but I really hope for the sake of, you know, what I know to be the case for a lot of people that have really used that platform, you know, incredibly, incredibly well to drive meaning fulfillment and, and learning that it at least maintains kind of that special sauce to its core. I love that.
Well, I just want to say on behalf of mundane millionaires and the SMB attorney account, we think that Elon's doing a tremendous job. Really, really fantastic. Absolutely. Never better. Heard actually that Eric, you're going to be you're going to be featured a lot more, and I think that is correlated exactly with how well everything, how smoothly everything is running over there. I'm playing the long game with my pizza posts. So. I was going to say it's really just because Elon loves pizza, and Eric's going going all in. Not well, th pizza. thanks for joining us today, Romine. Shout out if you want to your your Twitter handle and and anywhere else people can connect with you and find you and learn about what you're doing and saying and hear more of more of the observations that you shared on today's episode yeah thanks guys no it was this was a ton of fun it's very simple i mean i'm i'm online i'm on i'm on twitter started a newsletter recently been breaking down some of these lessons in a little bit more depth for 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 folks that, that don't find this boring find it exciting and find it helpful so no i appreciate coming on you know this was a ton of fun and i'm looking forward to hopefully doing it again in the future and Romine, let's plug your newsletter. Where where can folks find the, the actual newsletter itself? Yeah, sure. So actually, it's super easy. You can just go to my Twitter profile itself, right? At Romine Shop. That's my first name and last name. And there's a link for it in the bio itself. Okay. So you're, you can subscribe there. And let's, let's get that in the show notes too, Kevin. Absolutely. We'll get it in there. Romine, it was a pleasure. We really appreciate you joining us today. Great to learn from you and with you. And uh, yeah, and I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. This was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, Romine. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.